If you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We, uh, in the prior message, we dealt with the what I call the Thessalonian triad, and that is the work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Today we're going to drill down into the patience of hope. We're going to flesh that out so you understand it more, so it can uh, strengthen your faith and give you structure of what we call believing allegiance, and that is the definition of faith. So if you're there, let me read from the King James Version, and I am going to switch over to the RSV here and there. It reads, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Notice that triad there. Work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Now, when you go to Colossians 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says that we have a hope laid up for us in heaven. Well, we're going to flesh that out here in this message about 1 Thessalonians. Now, before we dive into the scriptures, before we dive into the letter, actually, let me give you a little bit of background to kind of set the stage. First off, we know that Paul and Silas went to go preach in Philippi. And Philippi was a Roman colony, and when they began to preach, they, they stirred up an uproar. They were uh, eventually beaten for the preaching of the gospel and then thrown into an inner prison. While they were in the inner prison... They sang praises to God at midnight, and an earthquake came that opened all the prison doors. And the jailer and his family got saved. And then, long story short, Paul and Silas eventually left the city. Well, they made their way to Thessalonica. And when they entered the city, they went straight to the Jewish synagogue, and Paul began preaching on the Sabbaths there. Luke says, that he preached for three Sabbaths. So he and Silas were in the city for about three, three to four weeks. Let me read this to you that Paul writes in his letter to the Thessalonians. He said that no one be moved by these afflictions, and he's speaking about persecution that he knows that the Thessalonian believers were suffering after he had left the city. He said, you yourselves know that this is to be our lot or our appointment or our destiny. For when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and as you know. So when Paul started preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, the persecution started immediately, immediately. Even though there were some Jews that got saved, 
a great many Gentiles, and what Luke writes, not a few of the leading women. Now, what's interesting is that Paul writes in chapter 1, he said, our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So here you have a spirit-filled preacher. We know that Paul was spirit-filled by the account in Acts. You know, Jesus said to the disciples, tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And then we have the day of Pentecost with the speaking in other tongues. In Acts 9, when Ananias went to go lay his hands on Paul, he commanded him to be filled with the Spirit, and we know from Paul's letter that he spoke in tongues quite frequently, that he told the uh, Corinthians, I speak in tongues more than you all. So here you have a Spirit-filled preacher who is preaching in the power of the Spirit and in the, um, the power of the gospel to a new city. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says that he preached in the demonstration of the Spirit so their faith would not lie in the wisdom of men. Well, that's consistent with what we see in 1 Thessalonians. And what I'm trying to get to here is, you know, a lot of times when we read Scripture, we, we read it apart from the facts on the ground or the realities on the ground. Because a lot of times now, we don't think about Paul as a spirit-filled preacher. But he says here in Thessalonians that that's exactly what he was, a spirit-filled preacher preaching in the power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're following in your Bible, uh, go down to verse 9. Let me read verse 8 and 9. It says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you. Now this is what I want to focus on here. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now, let's break this down just a little bit when it comes to what I say, the facts on the ground. In Thessalonica, ancient Greece, everybody worshipped idols. But by the preaching of this spirit and power gospel, they turned. And they turned from idols and they turned unto God. And that's important because some of the translations say, um, well, here it... But a definition of faith from that is believing allegiance or believing loyalty. And you see it here in this verse. You see that, um, that they turned from God from idols, to God from idols, meaning that it's kind of like they're facing some idols and then you make a turn and you pledge your loyalty to God, the true and living God, which is an echo from the Old Testament. Because God was known as the true and living God in the Old Testament. So this is Israel's God. Now, one interesting thing here too is the word serve. 
Because when you go back to the Greek, it really means to be enslaved to. In our Western mind, we don't like the word enslavement at all. It's virtually all negative. It's got a negative connotation to it. But Paul's not telling them that they have come into a faith that is negative, one that is where, you know, you were serving idols before, but now you're enslaved by a God that was Israel's God in the past. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that to be enslaved to the the living and true God, let me give you uh, an illustration of what Paul is meaning by this. You know, this day and age, uh, we've everybody has seen them. Um, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on the news, somewhere on the internet, you've seen some kind of heroic rescue. Whether it's a flood, somebody falling through the ice, a burning building or something like that. Somebody's got a phone out and they're videotaping the whole thing. And you sit there and you look at the victim and you don't know how in the world that victim's going to live through this. But out of the corner of the screen, you see that, you know, somebody's climbing on a rope, somebody's got a ladder or something, you know, a policeman, a fireman, a guy who was driving his pickup truck who just stopped and saw what was going on. And this responder, you see, risk his life while somebody's videotaping the whole thing, risk his life for somebody he doesn't know, doesn't have a relationship with. And you watch with rapt attention of how the rescue all, all pans out. And then once it's done, invariably somebody's got a microphone and you, you know, they ask the victim, they ask whoever was saved, well, you know, uh, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? And the first thing out of their mouths is usually, I don't know who this guy is, but he saved my life. In fact, I wouldn't even be here without him. So I owe him everything, whatever he wants, whatever he needs, whatever he thinks he needs, I'm going to do for him because I owe my entire existence to him. You might say that the victim was enslaved to the hero or enslaved himself or herself to the hero because of what the hero did. Well, that's what we have here in Thessalonians. When you think about the gospel, you've got the gospel hero of the Son being set forth. He is the hero. And when Paul writes here that the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to be enslaved to the living and true God, that's the context that he is writing in. They're happy to be enslaved. In fact, if you go through Paul's letter, letters, you see in Romans 1.1, in Philippians 1.1 and in Titus 1.1, he calls himself the slave of Christ or the slave of God, a self-profession, something that actually, if you get into your prayer closet and get alone with God, is very, very hard to say. It's very hard to tell the true and living God, I am your slave. Because... You know that you're not. I mean, you, you know, I mean, that's what you want to work towards. 
You want to be able to say with a straight face to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm your slave to do whatever you want. It's a very, very hard confession. But here, Paul says to these brand new believers, he was there for three or four weeks. And he says, you turn from idols to be enslaved to the true and living God. Hallelujah. Now, looking at this triad of virtues, you have faith, love, and hope. Well, those are virtues of God himself, aren't they? You have God is a God of faith, or God is a God of faithfulness. Back in the Old Testament, he swore by himself because he could not swear by anyone greater. He has kept his covenant. He has kept his word. And we know that he has done that because he sent forth the Son, and the Son has accomplished redemption for us. He has been eminently faithful. He's also a God of love. It not only says that in 1 Corinthians 13, but we know it to be true by what he has done. God loved the world, so he gave his Son. That's actually how it reads in the Greek. It's not so loved the world. He loved the world, so he gave his Son. So he gave his son what? So that those who believe may be saved. Hallelujah. He's a God of love. And then he's also a God of hope. He sent forth his son when we were all yet sinners. In the hope that men would be saved. He would do everything necessary to accomplish salvation. With the hope that people would believe. Would have that believing allegiance and become members of his family. So these three virtues, they mark our God, but they also mark the believer. You know, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says this. In telling the disciples to wait before they go out into the world, to wait and tarry in Jerusalem, he says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel isn't about just giving evidence, like a witness does at trial. We are the evidence. We are the embodiment of the gospel. Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses, not that you shall witness but you shall be the witnesses. You shall be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in being the witnesses, we exude these three virtues. But in this message, we want to focus on one, and that is the steadfastness or the assurance of hope. Now, when you go to chapter 3 in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this in verse 9. He says, For what thanksgiving can we render to God for you, for all the joy which we feel for your sake before our God? Now let me give you a little bit of background to that. When Paul was in Athens, he knew that there was persecution when he had left, uh, when the Thessalonians 
you know, stole him and Silas out at night to get them out of the city. So he wanted to know how they were doing. He wanted to know how they were standing up in the face of persecution. So he sent Timothy to spy out the land, so to speak. And Timothy came back with a glowing report of these brand new believers. And Paul says, for what thanksgiving can we render to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Now in verse 10, he says this, praying earnestly night and day that we may see your face see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. He tells them that he had wanted to go and see them face to face and shore up anything that had been lacking in their faith. They were brand new believers. Now, writing this letter, he wasn't sure what was lacking in their faith, because he hadn't talked to them face to face. But he's writing a spirit-inspired letter. And when you read the letter, you see part of what may have been lacking in their faith, and that is the steadfastness of hope, the assurance of hope. And that's what we're going to flesh out. One thing that is clear in going through 1 Thessalonians is Jesus is the source and the focus of our hope. And we're going to see that as we go through Paul's letter. Now, going back to verse 9 in chapter 1, we read verse 9 of how they turned from idols to serve or to be enslaved to a living and true God. But verse 10 is really interesting because he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there's a whole lot packed into this one sentence, or actually this partial sentence. He says, and to wait for his son from heaven. That word to wait, it's not a passive wait. It's an active. It's more like to await his son. You are active as a believer awaiting his son from heaven. And that is part of the steadfastness of hope. We know that Jesus is coming back to the planet. We know that he is returning. Now, that doesn't sound like any big revelation to us today, 2,000 years from the cross, because it has been preached. But if you go out into the world, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big revelation because those who are outside the body of Christ. They have no hope. They have no facts in the past that assures them of any hope in the future. They can speculate. They can conjecture. They can hypothesize and whatever they want to do. But they, they can't look in the past and say, because that event there happened, I know what awaits my future. The thing is, Christians have that. In fact, it's a guarantee of what our future is. And so Paul reminds these new believers of that. We are awaiting the sun from heaven. Amen. Now, he says, and what he puts in there, he says, whom he raised from the dead. 
And that is the historical fact that we look back to for the assurance of what's going to happen in the future. Now, he says something that's really fascinating, interesting, and is, um, what would you say, it is chilling at the same time. Not chilling for us, but chilling of what is coming. Because he says, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is a day of wrath coming. It is not something that is preached very often these days for a variety of reasons because of the culture we live in. But that doesn't do away with the day. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 2.5. He's speaking about unbelievers. He said, but by your heart and impenitent heart, by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a day of wrath coming. Amen. And that's consistent with what Paul is writing here in 1 Thessalonians. What he tells the believers, though, is that Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, one thing that's interesting is this. One thing that's fascinating is that no one's going to be able to say they didn't have any idea of what the nature of the wrath that is coming was going to be. No one can say we didn't have any idea of what this wrath meant. And let me explain it by going over to Romans 1. Let me read what Paul writes in verses 16 to 18. He writes this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness is revealed through faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous one by faith shall live. Now, going to verse 18. In verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch that revealed is present tense? Paul writes that the wrath of God is revealed. So we know that there's a future day of wrath, but Paul here in Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Where does he get that from? What is he talking about? You see that the context is the cross. Jesus has drawn back the veil of the wrath to come. You think, well, how in the world has he done that? He did it by offering himself on the cross. Now follow me with this. We know that Jesus was sent forth from the Father. We know that he was born of a virgin. 
and that he grew up and he was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, he knew no sin. But the thing is, that lasted until he offered himself up on the cross. And then when he did that, everything in the world changed. When they hung him on the cross, Deuteronomy 20 went into effect. Because there it says, in the law, in the law of Israel, it says, for anyone accused of a crime where the consequences is death, or the consequence is death, he shall be hung on a tree. And when he's hung on a tree, he'll be cursed of God. And Paul relates this in Galatians 3, I think it's 13. Christ became a curse for us. In fact, when you go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes this, he said, Him who knew no sin, he made him sin. God made him sin. And that's copacetic with Isaiah who wrote about it hundreds of years before. Isaiah in 53, Isaiah 53, the prophet writes that God laid upon him the sins of us all. So you get the picture of Jesus on the cross. You know, we've made it such a soundbite without really drilling down, without really examining what the content of the cross was all about. We hear people say, well, Jesus died for me on the cross, kind of like, well, he just died like anybody else. On the physical side, the crucifixion wasn't all that unusual because you had two thieves on either side of him, and it was a pretty regular thing for Rome to do. But when you combined the him who knew no sin with Deuteronomy, In the prophecy of Isaiah, everything changes. So the sinless one became full of sin. He became sin. And you see that, you hear that. While he's hanging on the cross, what's he cry out? You hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from the roars of my cries? I cry out to you day and night, and you don't hear me. Jesus is dying as a man separated from God. He's dying as sin. And we see what Paul's drawing here in Romans 1.18 is you want to, you have any wonder about the wrath of God? Well, there it is right there. You see it in the cross. You see how a man dies separated and apart from God. In fact, if you turn over to Hebrews 2.9, you should turn over in the uh, NRSV version because it reads in the margin the correct way, that Jesus died apart from God, tasting death for everyone. Most Bibles have by the grace of God, but when you get back into textual criticism and all the rest, the more reliable transcripts say he died separated from God, and you see that. You see that in the Psalms, and you see it in the Gospel accounts. 
God didn't turn his back on Jesus for just a moment. There's no scripture that says that. No, Jesus died as a man full of sin, apart from God. He fully, fully identified with us. The thing about believers is we identify with him both in death and in his resurrection. The unbeliever doesn't identify with him at all, but dies his own death the way that Jesus died separate and apart from God. Amen. So, so we see that Paul speaks to these believers in Thessalonica, and he says, Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath, giving them assurance again that they're not like everybody else, that they are part of the Lord's family. They are part of the Lord. They're identified with him, and therefore they won't suffer the wrath. Jesus incurred the wrath, amen, on behalf of believers. Those who, well, he incurred the wrath for everyone. But it's those who believe, who have that believing allegiance in him, who are reborn to new life, will escape the wrath to come, amen. In fact, in, uh, in the very same letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes this. He goes, so, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And this goes to the fact that when you're looking for the Lord's return, you're going to stay awake and you're going to stay sober. Amen. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night, meaning those who are not saved, those who are unbelievers. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we wake or sleep, we might live with him. So he reaffirms this even later in the same letter. We are not destined for the wrath to come. Amen. Now, to give you a contrast, to give you the other side of it, in Ephesians 5, 6, Paul writes this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for it is because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, or the sons of unbelief. He says the same thing in Colossians 3, 6. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So that is one thing about the assurance or steadfastness of hope. We know that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Amen. Now let's look at another aspect of this steadfastness of hope. Paul writes in chapter 2, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. 
Now, this is something that's hardly ever preached at all because we have preached an individualistic gospel. But the gospel really is all about what? The body of Christ. And what Paul says here is actually, uh, it is, it, it firms up the steadfastness of hope. Because he says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Before the Lord Jesus at his coming. Now think about that. Let that sink in a minute. What Paul is saying is that to these believers, that when he appears before the Lord Jesus Christ, at his coming or at his appearance, what is he going to say? What is he going to have to show the Lord? He said, it's you. You are our boast. You're our crown of rejoicing. And you know, since he chooses, since he identifies believers as the crown of boasting, that shows that other things are not the crown of boasting, doesn't it? If you choose something to say, well, that is the crown of boasting, then what you're doing is you're, you're pushing away anything else that is the crown of boasting. Now listen to what he says in Philippians to those believers. It's the very same thing. He says, holding fast the word of life. He's telling them, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Listen to what the apostle is saying. He tells them, you hold fast to the word of life. So when Jesus Christ appears, I may be proud. I may be proud that I didn't run in vain. Now turn that around a minute. If they don't hold fast to the word of life, if he doesn't have believers that he can show, if he doesn't have the spreading of the gospel that he can show, then he did run in vain, and he labored in vain. It goes to show what is important on the day of the Lord. It is the body of Christ. It is believers. And so what that shows us, that everything else is really dross. Everything else really doesn't matter that much in the day of the Lord. And you see how that girds up the faith of these new believers. They might be going through persecution. They might be going through hard times and loving one another through it. But what, what is Paul saying? He said, you keep this steadfast hope alive. You keep it before your eyes and in your heart that Jesus is coming back. And guess what? You are our boast. We are going to present you before the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's not going to be how many missionary trips that he went on and all the, you know, all the material things that he did. It's going to be what he did for the church, what he did for the Lord's body. Amen. 
Here's another aspect of the steadfastness of hope. It's in chapter 4. Paul writes this, But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, or those who have died in Christ physically, or physically died in Christ, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now again, think about the distinction here. These are new believers. Paul was there for three and a half, four weeks. He is, in effect, shoring up what might be lacking in their faith, and he reminds them, those who have died in the faith, don't grieve the way that others grieve who have no hope. Why? Why is the Christian's grief different? He goes on. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, well, there's that historical fact. We believe that Jesus was resurrected, and so we will be resurrected. Now, those who are outside of Christ, they don't have any such hope. They don't have anything to go on, but some kind of speculation when they arrive there, you know? So, he says, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, and he pounds his point in, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not proceed those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command or with a shout, with the archangel's call and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There you have a resurrection. Now stop there a minute. Because a lot of times we think about, well, being a Christian is all about being a disembodied spirit in heaven. That's not the whole picture. What Paul says here is, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. That is a physical resurrection of glorified bodies. Think about Jesus when he appeared to the disciples after his resurrection. He appears to them and they think he's a ghost. And he said, handle me. Because flesh and bone, for a ghost doesn't have flesh and bone like you see me have. We don't, you know, the, the normal thing is Jesus, the normal thinking is Jesus is some kind of doctrine. You know, the, uh, the doctrine of Christ or something like that. We get that from the ivory towers. But we have a flesh and bone resurrected man seated at God's right hand. And there's one day, and Paul's describing it here, where there's going to be a huge shout, the trumpet of God, and he's going to descend from heaven back down to the planet. And those who were dead in Christ, they're going to be resurrected in bodies like his body. He is the prototype. And then in verse 17, Paul goes on and says, We who are alive, who are left, shall be snatched up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
Now let's break that down. Let's unpack it some. Paul says in another letter that we who are alive, we're not going to be resurrected because we haven't died yet. But we who are alive, we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye because our bodies are going to be glorified. And then he says something that seems to be weird at first. It's weird to our Western mind. We don't think it's all that literal. It's got to be some kind of spiritual language. Because he says, Then we who are left, who are alive, who are left, shall be snatched up or caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, think hard about this. That word meet in the Greek, I'm reading it right here. It's hard for me to pronounce it. It's apontesin. It's a technical term for the departure from a city of a delegation of citizens to meet an arriving dignitary in order to accord the person proper respect and honor by escorting the dignitary back to the city. And that is the picture that Paul is painting here. We, the body of Christ, are going to be be resurrected in glorified physical bodies. We're going to meet the Lord in the air because we have physical bodies, and he's got a physical body. So we are going to be kind of like the delegation from the earth to go up, meet him in the air as he descends down to the planet to rule and reign over it, the consummation of the age. So here we have this jubilant pageantry, really, where we have the delegation, where we're not going to just sit around and say, well, when's the Lord going to get here? We're going to go meet him. We're going to go see him. And then we're going to turn right around as he approaches the planet, and he ascends his throne and consummates the age. And so we shall always, always, always be with the Lord. And Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Why? Because that is the future hope. We are steadfast. It keeps us, it keeps us in line. We don't deviate because we know he's coming back to the planet. We know that the day of wrath is coming, the day of the Lord is coming, and we're answering to him. But he says, comfort one another. Because why? Because the whole body of Christ is coming together then. You know, you look at the Apostle Paul. He says, what is our joy? What is our crown of boasting? Is it not you? So on the day, he's going to be reunited with those Thessalonian believers. The whole body of Christ is going to be reunited. And then we're going to go see the Lord and escort him back to the earth. It's going to be a great time, a joyful time, because we are all been saved and we are in the Lord. So Paul says, comfort one another with these words. We reassure one another with these words. The Lord is coming back. He's coming back for us. We are not orphaned. Amen. Cool, cool stuff. Cool stuff. Now, Paul in, uh, in chapter 5 He says that uh, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. But he explains that it's going to come as a thief in the night to whom? To the sons of disobedience, to the sons of unbelief. Why? 
Because they don't believe in the resurrection. They haven't called him Lord. They're not looking for it. But that day isn't going to catch us as a thief in the night. Why? Because we are ever watchful for that day. We are looking forward to his return. Amen. And then finally, the last thing that Paul outlines in this letter about the steadfastness of hope is holiness. Let me read to you chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He said, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men as we do to you. Now listen to what he says in the next verse. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Or all his holy ones. Saints is an unfortunate translation. Because in the Greek it says holy ones. But look what Paul does here. Paul says... So he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This steadfastness of hope, like I said, it keeps us aligned. It, it ensures our holiness before the Lord. Why? Because we know what our priorities are. We know, you know, it is... We have the work of faith, the believing allegiance. We, we have the labor of love where we selflessly love one another. And that is all tied together with the fact that we look for the steadfastness of hope. We know that he is returning. And so we live in holiness because we know that we're going to face him. We know that we're going to be judged by the one who gave himself for us. The one who was set sent forth by the Father, who willingly and selflessly offered himself on the cross to be made sin for us. You know, we don't think of it too often, really. But you think of that day and think of yourself standing before the one who gave himself for you. The one who went through three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, until he was resurrected, who became sin. And we will stand before him face to face. If that doesn't keep you holy, if that doesn't keep you unblameable, there's nothing else that can. But what Paul does here is he reminds them of the fact. He says, the Lord will keep you unblameable at his coming. He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So you see with this letter, just this short letter, how this one uh, virtue of the triad just keeps the straight line of the believer's heart, just keeps it pure because we know that he is returning to the planet we know that he is coming back for us. And to contrast it again, because we see it again and again in the letter, we're not appointed under wrath. That might not seem like a big thing as believers, because believers don't really concentrate on the day of the Lord and wrath. 
but it is a future fact. And we live in the assurance that Jesus rescues us from that day. From that day. And that we're going to be with him forever and ever, always, always. Hallelujah. So let me close with a benediction. And this is also from chapter 5. Paul prays this. He said, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, keep you holy, completely. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that coming again, that assurance of hope. That we be kept blameless. Be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Faithful is he that calls you who will also do it. And he will do it by the power of his spirit. Hallelujah.